0: Welcome to the podcast of The Table of Minneapolis Church. We are a community that is committed to practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to belong and be loved. Our hope is that in this podcast, in the message that you will hear, that you'll be reminded again of the eternal truth that no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, the places that you've gone or the places that you've stayed, There will always be a seat here for you at the table, for you're a child of God, and beloved, you belong. Enjoy this week's message. I'll say this, that I for one, um, as (laughs) I'll say this. As you know, we entered into this thing two years ago, this is our third season now, our third September together, and it's always been like, what are we actually getting into? But the one constant has been having Debbie with me and with us as we've taken on all the unknowns. And from the get-go, it's been a craving, like how can we get more of Debbie in this thing, especially as more people are coming in. Debbie's gifts are connecting, investing, pastoring, making this whole thing possible. And so when she finally realized that it was time, that, is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah. That's a fair way, right? I'm not gonna want to, do we have to have a conversation later? Are we okay? Okay. When it was time, though, Debbie recognized that the pieces were in place, that we could actually make this thing possible. It was, it's been a celebratory season for us because we are so excited about what it's going to look like to have all of Debbie here in this community that, that we love so much. So that's really good news. It also is going to require stuff from us. Uh, we sent out a letter this past week announcing it to current members and people whose address we have. And... Um, <laughs> Just recognizing the reality that you guys, were, again, year three for us, this isn't a normative path to take where it's like you're a few years in, you're not a mega church. To hire two full-time people is is a stretch and yet we're going to take it because we believe that this is where we have been called to go. We believe that this is what God's best interest is for us so we're trying to take that path and be as faithful as we can. Amidst all the doubts and fears and anxieties, and all of the challenges that come fiscally with the take of this of this size, and so in that letter, which John Keller has extras and he'll be handing out at the door, whether you like one or not, and it just basically states that need and it says that with more. Um, Taking out a full-time staff with bringing in more families and these kids that we want to provide for and be able to create a hospitable environment for, it's going to require all of us to lean in a little bit more than we previously had in order for us to pull it off. So if you have money, please give it all at some point soon. Thank you very much. <laughs> on the topic of money, as we get into our series here on Greater Than I've got to tell you this story about my son, Wyatt. That's his first day of school photo. We are, he's a beautiful little boy. Um, I was sitting next to him the other day, and you got to understand, like, and this is one of the dangers. I'm going to have to stop telling stories about him at some point. At some point it becomes unhealthy, but it's how I justify how expensive he is. You know, use him as a sermon illustration every now and then. The other day we were sitting on the couch, and um, Wyatt informed me that baseball was now his favorite sport. And he also told me that in order for him to be adequately equipped to be the baller that he was born to be, I would not only need to provide him with a glove, a bat, and a ball, he said that he needs, and it pained him to say it, I need a full-blown batting cage. Like, I need, like, a in the backyard. It's a non-negotiable. And so I, I brought him into a reality check by taking him to www. Uh, tcfbank.com and showed him how much money mom and dad have and how much a baseball cage costs and how shockingly similar in size those two numbers actually were. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I kid you not, I'm, this is not a hyperbole of any kind, this is exactly what happened. Wyatt leans forward as if he's getting what I'm saying and here I am thinking it's gonna be like one of those mythical moments of father-son connecting, the kind you only see in lifetime films. I, I, he leans forward, places his right hand on my back, verbatim. Dad, why don't you have any money? <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to explain to him. I said, you know, uh, um, you know, both mom and dad. It's not just dad who doesn't have any money. Mom does have money too, okay? We both, you know, we, we, we took jobs that we feel like this is how we're going to maximize who God has created us to be in the time that we're able to be here, and, and we think that's important. So, no, they're not the highest-paying gigs, but my modeling career is going to kick in sooner or later. Who are we getting? At some point, we should be fine. Verbatim, hand on the back. Wyatt leans forward, looks me in the eyes, and says to me, "Damn, I know you love God. I do. You love God a lot. But I need you to understand that I love money. (laughs) And in order for us both to be happy, we're going to need both of these things to be happening. (laughs) And I said, you need to speak when spoken to from now on, (laughs) because this is absurd. Get a job, pull your weight. But isn't that amazing? (laughs) Isn't that incredible? I mean, not like, um, not like the um, satanic presence of greed that's in my eldest son, but, but like the absence of needing to hide it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that unapologetic, whatever's stirring in him is going to come out of him. Like there is no filter. He is completely free. That's amazing. And it's kind of heartbreaking too because I know that he won't always be that way. In fact, I was telling Lauren, we were talking about that moment, and we were remembering these stories of when he would say things like that and do things like that on a frequent basis, but now, as he is a full-grown man entering into the first grade, he's doing it less and less. We have this tendency to grow out of that season, and we frame it, you know, this leaving of the childhood, leaving of the childishness. We frame it as a graduation but I think it's crushing because it kind of feels more like a divorce. Like there is something that is a defect in the human condition. That there's a part of being a person that is problematic in this way. Because we all start out like Wyatt once did. We all were born brave and free with no filter attached. We, we didn't have concerns. We would wear sweatpants on the daily. We'd do no dives, nose dives with like no shame whatsoever. You remember those days, Zubas? Remember those days? We were free and we were fine. We were fully participating in our life. But as the years started to pile on, and as the passing comments and the passing cuts came in to them, we started to expire a little bit by little bit. And that freedom that we once had to fully be who we are It gave way to these filtered fear where we start performing as others would like us to be. And so I think about these stories with these moments with Wyatt and and they are um, wonderful, but they're also heartbreaking because I can see that he's leaving that behind and he's being conditioned into our ways, the ways that we want people to be to act your age, keep your cool, be palatable at the expense of being honest. Don't make a scene. I was thinking about all of this this past Monday. Wednesday is not a day, Monday is a day. On Monday, September 11th, 2019, as we're thinking back on the events from 2001, September 11th, I thought about this conversation with Wyatt and this whole thing about us because when you think about those events in New York City from 18 years ago, it wasn't just 3,000 lives that were taken from us, it also was something that was taken from us in how we choose to live. I remember reading this article years ago, couldn't find it for the life of me, but it spoke in-depth about how the events of this day 18 years ago, broke us in a way that we had yet to be broken, scared us in a way that we had never been scared. We had seen violence before, death was nothing new, but our, our perception of it was that it was always far away. It was happening in the remote pieces of the world, remote Africa, war-torn Middle East. That's where catastrophes of this kind happened, but here it was Happening up close, happening in person, happening to people that look just like us. People that love football just like we like football. People who shop at Whole Foods. People who have babies that they brought to school. This was unprecedented in its closeness, especially for privileged white folk in America. We had never encountered a pain of this discontence. We had no idea how to bring it into our reality. We had no idea what to actually do with it now that it was here. The events of September 11th fundamentally altered the psychological landscape of our society. And we've yet to learn how to fully run since. The hit that we took was unprecedented. And unlike the attack on Pearl Harbor, the original uh, day of infamy. When we look to our leadership to ask how are we now to go about our days, how are we to live, we didn't have a man in a wheelchair who was sitting in the White House who told us, who urged us to reassess our strengths and our weaknesses as American citizens. Instead, we looked to our leaders and they told us to max out our credit cards for the sake of the cause. Don't let the terrorists win by letting them see that you've been wounded. Keep on trucking. Keep on going. Don't let this take you away from the life that you've been given. Don't let the terrorists win. And and almost every day since then, we've done that. We've kept up with business as usual. We've kept up with our stiff upper lips. Almost every day since September 11th, 2001, we have kept on going forward. But every day of every year on September 11th, we recognize that it's a very hard thing to do. When I was watching the news this past Monday, and the person who was recalling the events of that day, they framed it as the day in which everything changed. Monday is the one day of the year when we can acknowledge that everything changed on that day. Monday is the one day of the year where we can actually stop and breathe and recognize that, yeah, it has been hard to go forward since a loss like that. There was a fear that sunk in. There was a faith that skipped town. There was a pain unprecedented that all of a sudden became familiar and we have been walking with a limp now for 18 years. So finally, when somebody says that that was the day where everything changed, we can finally acknowledge that it did. We can finally acknowledge that faking it rarely leads to making it. We can stop idolizing the stiff upper lip. And we can start asking better questions about how do we go on living. I like this practice. I think it's important rhythmically for us as a people. I think it's important every September 11th that we pause and we take on this practice as society. I do wonder, however, when we'll take on the same practice in our stories. In the same way where we annually will look back to this collective wound that is yet to heal and we recognize and we ask new questions about what it means and what it meant and how we are to go forward since, when are we going to do that when we look back on the days where we stopped being free and got full of fear instead? How are we going to ever pause and think about the times when we stopped just going into the room unafraid of what others thought. When we realize for the first time that come as you are and being enough, we're not one and the same. When are we going to stop and turn around and talk about the traumas that have taken things from our own stories? When will we actually acknowledge uh, how scared we are sometimes? Like really, like how we don't have any idea what we're doing? as parents, as a pastor, as community members, as neighbors, as friends, any of it. How often are you afraid? How often do you feel lost? How often do you feel like you are barely making ends meet and even when you do, you don't know if they're being met? It's not a far cry to say that much of the 21st century thus far has been made in the image of fear. And as Christians, that should break our hearts because we know that we were made in the image of God. And perfect love has no space for paranoia and fear. The image of God is good, but the image of fear says you're not good enough. The image of fear tells us to lock our doors. The image of God says to love your neighbors. The image of fear says you need to protect your life, guard it. The image of God says you need to give it away. The image of fear takes its cues from scarcity, but the image of God places its trust in the surplus. How do we get back to that image in light of all that's taken us away from it? How do we recover our true image when we're constantly consumed by our trauma from losing it? We aren't the first to ask this question. We aren't the first to wrestle with this reality. In fact, There's a group of Jews who in the 6th century BC had to encounter a problem and and come up with their own answer to this question. 6th century BC, Jewish people living in Jerusalem. Everything was going as it was supposed to go. Everything was in place until the day when it wasn't. An attack came from out east. The Babylonians invaded in the city and turned everything into dust. The leadership was killed. The families were torn apart and those who were still standing on their feet, they were led away to a faraway land. To be a Jew apart from your land is to be a Jew apart from your own identity. You didn't know who you were if you didn't understand that this is where you are. The soil spoke into your story. Everything that was was no longer to be. The past that they had produced was destroyed. The future that they had aspired towards was gone. Everything was lost. And then, in the midst of that, in the midst of a people who are scared and fragile and convinced that their ending had come, all of a sudden a poet stood up and said among the people, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What is the poet putting forth right there? In that place, in that loss, in the absence of all that was, in that place of pain that penetrates on a level that they did not know was possible. The poet is saying we've been in this place before. There was another time when the world felt formless. Like chaos had no control. There were other days where people got out of bed and felt like the whole thing was draped in darkness. There was an emptiness that exhausted everybody in the land. And yet at that time and in that place, amidst all these things that were haunting these people, there was one who was still hovering above. Amidst this incredible and deep pain and loss, there was one who was still cultivating new life. This would have been the elevator in the room. This would have changed the perspective and the paradigm through which everybody would have seen the predicament that they were in. And you might not hear it the way you're supposed to hear it. So let me try to break it down real quick for you. In the beginning, God created, that's what it says for us. That's not exactly what the Hebrews heard. Barah Elohim. Those words in English, we write them down as in the beginning God created. But to the Jews in Babylon, to the ones who were desperate for good news, they didn't read in the beginning God created. They heard the poet say in the beginning of God's creating. Do you hear the difference between the two? The former tells us of an event that once happened, but the latter tells us of an event that never stopped. That the one who once hovered over all those things that haunted, that one is still hovering still. That God didn't just bring us into life, God is also bringing us through the loss. And even if the home is over there somewhere, somehow we can be here and have home. Somehow we can recover what was lost even if we don't get our hands back on the soil far away. Because there is one who is still hovering over all of the things that are haunting. All of the ghosts that we can't seem to strip ourselves of, God is still permeating above. Cultivating, creating, and cracking open something new. Meister Eckhart, when he um, came across this wisdom and recognized that God is not a one-time creative artist but is the ongoing creative act. Uh, He recognized that life could change, that he didn't have to be stuck, that he could go back to that start where he was free and full and not afraid. And upon writing about that experience of actually making that return to who he actually was and who his identity was in the image of God, he writes this about not just his place but all of our places. There is a place in the soul. There's a place in the soul that neither time nor space nor created thing can touch. If you really try to spell it out, and please do, if you really try to spell it out, what Eckhart is trying to say to you, he's trying to say that there is a place that is still intact that you can go home to. That when you grew up, not everything in you left. John Donahue, he says that we are all essentially ex-babies. Looking for a way to return back home. Back to who we actually are, not the one that we are trying to be. There is a place in you that fear's fingers haven't reached. There's a place in you where your childlike freedom, it still reigns. I know that these, this Sunday discourse that we do, this, the song and the dance and the sermon and everything, it can feel so ritualistic and religious and like we do this motion, but actually try to think about what it is that he is saying because if it's true, it changes everything. If it's true, it's the good news of the gospel because it says that I know no matter who you are that you've seen some things and you've said some things. I know that you've built some things and that you've broken some things. I know that you've been both the victor and the victim. You've had some things and you've lost some things. I know you've experienced joy and I know you've experienced pain. And I know that no matter who you are, you carry in you that longing to go back home, to be integrated, to be whole, to be on your own two feet and find peace in that. Eckhart says that there is a place where you can go there. And then, when John set out to write his gospel, he set out to tell you about the path to get there. In the Gospel of John, in the prologue, he provides a poem that mirrors the Genesis story in the beginning of God's creating the active presence, cultivating new life, recycling all of our stories into something bigger and better and more beautiful and more true to who we actually are. John writes his account, the prologue, to mirror the Genesis account. And in the Genesis account, when the poet stands up and he says, listen, if you want to know how God made the world, then I got to tell you about the seven days that followed Seven days of light and water and expanse in the sky and vegetation and people and, and animals. All of these ways that God brought the world into being were through seven days. What John is saying here at the beginning of John is that all of the ways that God is trying to bring your world into being are through seven specific practices. This is the greater than promise that we're entering into. This is the series that we are so excited about right now. Because John takes the poet's work in Genesis. And he says that if God is still the activating and energizing creative force in the world that is cultivating new worlds and binding broken things back together, then there is a path back to that place that Eckhart spoke about, and there are seven specific practices. John lays those out, and for the next eight weeks, we're going to be diving into each and every one of those. John's intention is to bring you into this place, into this path, where, again, you go back to being the baby that you always were where you weren't afraid to get out of bed, where you weren't afraid about whose seat you were gonna be sitting next to, when you weren't afraid about whether or not you were going to be embraced by them because you knew already that you were embraced by God and there was sufficiency in that. Our kingdom identity has to precede all other activities or we'll look for our identity in the activities that come and that's not a healthy way to live. There's gotta be a better way forward. And so I wrote, um, I did this thing yesterday. You know, I asked Christian if he thought it was cool, and he literally took about five minutes to answer, and so I don't actually think it is. So I'm having hesitation, but Matt, if you're going to actually be true to your image of God and not the image of fear, you just got to show it anyways. It's not that big of a deal anyways. (laughs) My wife said I could paint on the walls, and when I set out to paint on my office wall, I thought, what is essentially the one thing that I wanna be reminded of every time when I walk into my office? And so I painted this quote, this quote, that quote. It's from Ram Dass and it says, we are all just walking each other home. When I think about all my fears and anxieties, uncertainties as a pastor, as a spouse, as a friend, as a parent all of the things i do not know i know that i am enough and with my crumb i can ask for yours and together we can help each other get where we're trying to go that's what john is doing in his gospel he's telling a new creation story offering up a path back home to where you belong will you pray with me jesus thank you god for the space thank you lord for being active present Loving, engaging, constantly calling us back to the home that we belong to. Christ, give us the courage to follow. Christ, give us hearts that are open to you. Amidst all of the things that are haunting us, remind us of the spirit who hovers above us. That you are the one who didn't just bring us into life, that brings us through life. And will do so again and again. All God's children, we say together, Amen.
1: Love that idea that we are just walking each other home. And I love the idea of home. Because I know for me, I've had these moments where home feels like this space where there's a rightness that's beyond me. That there's a rightness in something that um, moves me, that reminds me that there's something so much bigger going on. And that what's, what's going on is holy and divine and inspired. But in our lives and in our culture and in the busyness, sometimes we forget. We lose the Wyatt in us. And there's a real beauty in, in pausing and remembering and allowing that, that space, that feeling of, of home be part of who we are I hope when we come forward for communion tonight we might do just that that we might take the the time to connect, to connect with God in a way that reminds us that we're on a journey and that journey is uh, something we do together and it has to do with home On the night before Jesus died, he sat with his disciples around a table and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And maybe that's what we're remembering When we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we're remembering home, the divine connection that's far beyond us but feels so right. We invite you during the music to come forward. There'll be gluten-free elements right here and regular elements on the side. Come and uh, come as you feel called. So please stand as together we pray. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is kingdom the power glory forever